to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I have two of my friends here, two people I look up to, two people with better hair than I have on this show. This is weird, though. It feels like I'm like I'm doing a like a MSNBC tribute uh, show going on right here. I don't I don't know how my friends at, at CNN are going to love this, but I have two experts on the court here today. And where I wanted to start was, Ellie, just talk to me about the arc of your career from big law to your work now as a leading commentator. Why did you leave a big law firm to do the work you're doing now? Yeah. Oh, well, um, I hated it. Uh, it was, <laughs> but you didn't hate, you didn't hate, you didn't hate once every two weeks. Cause those right. checks were fabulous. I love the money. The money, the money was good, but you know, my story is, is, you know, I'm one of the quitting stories and I have a couple, but one of, one of my favorite ones is I'm working on this case and it's, you know, large oil company, doing horrible stuff around the globe, being sued by the Nigerian government. And I'm on the side of the oil company. And I was like, yeah, the ancestors did not sacrifice. So I can be <laughs> doing this right now. So I quit. I spent a good 13 months on my couch playing Madden football. Um, I got really good at it. That was fun. Um, and, how, did you, how did your wife appreciate that part, though? I mean, everybody agree with me? I think the word appreciate is a little bit too strong. Uh, <laughs> I think she she understood that I needed to come to a different point in my career. Uh, yeah, I would I would try to get some jobs, you know. So like I taught LSAT and I um, applied for the Daily Show and you know so, some took some flyers on some different things. But when I kind of <laughs> look at Brian's face when you said you <laughs> applied for the day, you taught the LSAT and applied. What else did you do? Did you get, did you like get you a pop of You would have been good as a writer on the Daily Show, don't you think? I got to the final round. The final round for the Daily Show, at least back in the day, it's like 10 people. They put you in a room behind, you know, you know look through, see through uh, mirrors and they make you write a Daily Show and they kind of judge your performance. And I, I did not do well. Um, and the writer's room full of other actual comics. But yeah, so like I, I took some flyers. The way that I, I came back or, or came to the law really got back to my roots of like why I went to law school in the first place. The law is in everything, I believe. The law is crucial to everything that we do in this country. And for most of my life, the only people that have been allowed to report on the law are white people, um, generally white men. Um, not, and I'm not just talking about people who are allowed to actually make laws, right? That's obviously, you know, part of the systemic racism and misogyny of this country. But I'm talking about the actual reporters on the law. That is a particularly white group um, of people. And I felt like there were stories that were missed. I felt like there were angles that were missed. Um, I've said before on, on different programs, you know, if the Supreme Court is taking away rights in the room, and nobody who's in the room watching them do it or having their rights taken away, well, yeah. that story's gonna come out a lot differently than if the person in the room is like, hey, I used to be more free before today. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. a that's a whole different kind of uh, story. Um, and that's kind of how I got into legal reporting and, and legal coverage. I really wanted to, you know, I've said before, I'm openly black as I cover the courts. Um, and I do think that matters. We can, I do we think can that tell, that. we can tell that we can, you don't hide, you don't hide that unapologetically is, I think is the word that we, that we would use. So, yeah, I, th I think that perspective is relevant and, and useful because I do think that there are, you know, the law can be so esoteric and it can live 
at 30,000 feet. And it can, you know, affect people in these very kind of complicated yet subtle ways. And I feel like my job is to take that complication and bring it down and explain it in a way that real people on the ground can understand what's at stake. Because when they do, and I'm sure Brian is going to agree with me on this, when people understand what's at stake, the Republican argument is wildly unpopular. When, when people understand what the Republicans and the Federal Society and all of these conservative groups are actually trying to do with the law, what they're trying to do is wildly unpopular. And so if you can just explain to people what's actually happening, that goes a long way to winning the argument. Brian, you are also one of the brightest minds I know, not just I think that people, and I don't want to say underestimate you, but people pigeonhole you as being a comms guy. But they don't truly understand that not only are your communication skills like second to none, but you also have this dearth of experience and understanding of justice and the courts. So what does your organization demand justice? And how did you get so involved as a non-lawyer in these justice and court issues? So I um, very nearly went to law school. Um, Senior year of college, most of my friends were going to law school. And I thought that I would take the LSAT and apply to law school too. And I was so cocky based on like how um, well I had done on the SAT in high school that I just like walked into the LSAT exam and did no prep, no uh, practice tests. And then I got my score back and I was like, hmm, I probably won't get into any any of the T12 law schools with this score. So I was like, all right, I'll just put my plans on hold for a year. I'll take the LSAT again in a year. I'll figure out something to do in a gap year. And so I ended up uh, working on a political campaign and then I got sucked into the campaign life and I never ended up following through and applying to law school. But um, two jobs ago, I ended up working in the Justice Department under Eric Holder. And in order to get anybody to tell me anything, I had to like impress the litigators at DOJ. So um, you had to like gain their trust to be brought into the circle and be told things. And so it required me to like read briefs and ask smart questions and Um, And so it wasn't until I got to the Justice Department under Holder that I really started to appreciate judges as a political priority. I worked for six years in the Senate and we confirmed judges all the time. And I never engaged on the topic, never thought anything of it, never paid any attention to its importance. Mm. And then after the 2016 election, uh, I was working with Yubikari, doing some CNN commentary. I had some political clients working as a... You were definitely definitely like a... B minus C plus contributor. I, well, I know because <laughs> because when I went to them and I said, hey, I'm starting a new group and I'm going to be the president of this new group. They said, well, that's a conflict. You're going to have to drop your CNN contract. <laughs> like, are I important enough to try to keep? And they were like, that's if that's too big of a conflict for us. You know, Daily Caller will probably write a bad story. So, uh, oh, so I up, wow. I, I, wow. I gave, <laughs> Shots fired. The shame. I gave up my CNN gig. And um, dropped all my other clients and started a project in 2018 called Demand Justice. And the point of it was to try to solve for the decades-long asymmetry between how much priority was assigned to the issue of the courts by, the, by conservatives compared to Democrats. And I got reconnected with a guy that I worked with in the Senate named Chris Kang, um, who was the chief counsel for Dick Durbin when I worked for Chuck Schumer. And uh, Chris had gone on to be the 
deputy chief counsel in the Obama White House handling judicial nominations. So he brought the credibility and the substance to our tandem. And uh, the two of us started this group in the spring of 2018. And we immediately, the posture that we adopted was immediately, we're going to start calling out Democrats that are like falling asleep at the switch on this issue. And so that immediately set us apart because we weren't just sort of whining about how this is awful that Mitch McConnell's jamming all these judges through. We were holding Democrats' feet to the fire saying, what are you doing to stop this? Why are you voting for so many of these assholes? Can I say assholes? And then after the Brett Kavanaugh fight was when I first got introduced to Ellie because like so many people after Brett Kavanaugh, we were all looking around and saying, oh, where do we, how do we pick up the pieces and move on from here? And People at esteemed outlets like Above the Law, which is read by all these lawyers at big law, you know, in the big law world at big corporate firms. This is the crowd that really prizes, you know, clerkships on the Supreme Court. This is a very elite audience that Ellie was writing for. But he was writing these swashbuckling pieces that were just calling out the hypocrisy of people that on the Democratic and Republican side alike that had this insular culture and was one of the leading voices calling for, you know, the ideas like reforming the Supreme Court. And I thought to myself, if people that are on the inside that are writing for elite audiences like this are willing to call it out, then a grassroots group like mine should be willing to try to organize behind it. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I first got acquainted with Ellie. And we did an event together in December of 2018. And he took the house down with it, the storytelling that, you know, is on display here right now. And, um, and that's when we decided to sort of lean in on that issue. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. So last episode, I had an intro and I I made it clear that President Trump's nominee will get a hearing this fall and be confirmed um, probably before the election or during the lame lame duck election, because I don't think Senate Democrats have the ability to stop Senate Republicans. Am I wrong here? Is there anything that Senate Democrats can do to stop or slow down a nomination? Brian started and we'll let Ellie, Ellie kind of fill in. So the honest answer is I'm not sure, Bakari, but I think we owe it to ourselves to try like hell. And if you try like hell, anything can happen. That's my theory. And so people ask me right now, how are you going to get the votes? And I was like, well, right now, let, let's just figure out how can we get this to the other side of the election? And if I can get this past the election, I feel like it's a whole new ball game, and the thing will take on a completely different... Why, why do you think that? I mean, can you? you, you are, I'm assuming you're talking about you know, not only outgoing senators, but a city, a sitting new senator like Mark Kelly, who can be seated as early as November 30th. Well, I just think that it, it, no matter which way the election goes, it could take on a different complexion. If it's a route and there has been an across the board 
rebuke of the Republican Party and Trump has uh, has lost and the Senate has flipped. I just think that the act of still plowing forward with this um, will take on an entirely different yeah. look. And people like Mitt Romney might have a, a second um, inclination about proceeding on this. Uh, by the other token, if it's extremely close and it looks like the election is headed for a legal challenge, uh, as Trump is already previewing out loud, I think it takes on a different complexion because then literally the vote is a vote to decide the election itself. So plus, you know, as you're referencing there, if we get to the end of the month of November and uh, Mark Kelly is one, he can be seated by the end of November. And that creates one last vote that you have to find. Um, and just the randomness of anything that could occur. You know, <laughs> so fight like hell. I'm with you. I, you know, I'm all, you, you know. Like so I'm not saying it's a, I'm not saying, you know, it's a, it, it's even a 50, 50 chance, but if, if it's a 20% chance, we have to fight to maximize the chance that that 20% can materialize. It's too important not to. Ellen, and, I agree. and the important thing, the important thing about why we should fight really hard is I think it dovetails with winning the election. It's not at odds at all with winning the election mobilizing around this, making the Republicans own the lack of popularity around the idea of pushing this helps you win the election itself. It mobilizes people, will turn out people, will make it less likely that Joni Ernst wins that Senate race in Iowa. So I think these two things dovetail, so we have nothing to lose by fighting as if it's a jump ball. Ellie, your thoughts? I, I generally agree, but I, I agree from a slightly different perspective. I'm particularly focused on what the political solution is to them packing the court with this extra justice, right? So, I'm sure let's, we'll talk, uh, so let's, yeah, yeah we're going to talk about we're, packing we're about and expanding, which are, to, right. which are totally different things. But Exactly. So pushing that to the side, but understanding that that's out there. I looked at the fight between now and inauguration as the fight to build political momentum for what has to happen after the inauguration if Biden wins. And so I think that making them fight, doing this fight as hard as we can, they're going to win, but we have to make them win ugly. We have to make it obvious how, the lengths to which they are willing to go in order to control the Supreme Court. So I think it's critically important, if we can, to use every tactic, fair and unfair, to delay this to after the election, because at the point where we have a lame duck Congress, as a point where we have people who have likely been voted out of office already, voting to confirm a Supreme Court justice that is going to wield power for 40 years, I think that looks very different than if we have a, a, a duly elected Senate voting on this nominee. So I think all of that plays into what happens after the inauguration. If they are going to win, I have no doubt about that, but we have to make them win as ugly and as pettily and as grossly as possible in order to build momentum for what has to happen next. Am I wrong in saying that Barbara Lagoa, just based on, I, I hope I pronounced her name right, just based on the political dynamics is probably the front runner, Cuban American from Florida with Amy uh, Comey being right up there with her. Did I pronounce her name right too? I, I hope so. And even Daniel Cameron getting an, a, a once over after uh, Kentucky this week. Give me your cliff notes, Ellie, of, of, of those candidates and any um, dark horses or anybody I may be missing. You've got flip flops. Um, Amy, Co Amy Coney Barrett. Coney's her middle name. Coney um, Barrett. OK. Yeah, yeah, Amy Coney Barrett. OK, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Uh, she's the front runner. Um, and she's the front runner because this is the person that the Republican establishment, the conservative judicial establishment, the Federal Society, has wanted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat for going back five, six years now. She's been pre-vetted 
Um, all of her skeletons are well known. They know exactly how they want to defend her. And they are desperate to have a woman be the person to overturn or to significantly reduce Roe v. Wade. She's the front runner. Lagoa is kind of clicks a lot of political boxes. But, but she, Lagoa ha- actually also got numerous Democratic senators to vote for her confirmation. Uh, well, whereas Comey, Comey, go ahead. But, see, yeah. Picard, but they all do. I mean, this is part of the. Well, Comey Barrett only has two, if I'm not mistaken. And one, of course, is my good friend Joe Manchin. So, like, you know, uh, so my question is does that factor in? And then when people are analyzing this, is, is this Amy Coney Barrett's race to run away with? It's hers to lose. Um, Lagoa checks a lot of boxes, but she just hasn't been vetted as deeply and for as long as ACB. And in a situation where you are trying to ram something through very quickly, you can't afford another Kavanaugh. And by that, I don't just mean you can't afford to push through another alleged attempt at rapist. I mean, you can't afford to push through a person who has something in their background that they don't know about yet that might spool up into a whole thing that requires more time and more investigation. ACB has none of those problems. She's been pre-vetted. So I think she's clear in a way the front runner. It doesn't mean that anything weird can happen because Donald Trump is a crazy person. Um, and so you never know. And she does, Lagoa does check a lot of kind of political boxes correctly. But I, I really, I would be surprised if it's anybody other than Amy Coney Barrett. Are you, are you in the same line of thought there, Brian, or do you see the political, I I mean, you come from a political, you've been on campaigns and when Florida's close, uh, you know, that, that, that Cubans of a certain age are supporting you overwhelmingly against your opponent, that being Donald Trump over Joe Biden, you can solidify a base. She's extremely popular and she's only had, you know, uh, she contrary to ACB, as we now call her, uh, that's, that's pretty dope. I like that. Uh, actually, actually got a legitimate number of crossover support. So where are you on that? Yeah, so I think you're right in the analysis, Bakari, that if the campaign team was picking, they might pick the going. But um, Ellie is right that the conservative legal infrastructure that is the one that Donald Trump made his deal with in the spring of 2016 when he released the shortlist in the first place, and that is led by the likes of Leonard Leo and Don McGahn, who has since left the White House Counsel's office. But the infrastructure that has been around um, Donald Trump and has really used Donald Trump's presidency as the vessel to achieve what has been their 40-year strategy of taking over the third branch of government, their chosen pick is Amy Coney Barrett. So she's like in, in, you know, in sports, you can have a flashy free agent or you, you might have the homegrown person that came up through your own farm system that you just have that much more loyalty to because you groomed them ever since they were your first round draft pick, that is Amy Coney Barrett. So the attractiveness politically being from Florida and everything notwithstanding of Lagoa, I think that at the end of the day, judicial conservatives will want the sure thing that they think they have in Amy Coney Barrett. Let's talk about a, a bigger conversation real quick, Brian, because this is something you deal with on a daily basis. But I want to talk about Democrats in the courts. It drives me crazy. Um, Rahm Emanuel notoriously prioritized the stimulus and ACA and even Dodd-Frank over the courts. We see Republicans dropping any pretense of trying to pass another stimulus package to confirm a justice in record time. And if it's one thing Mitch McConnell has done, it's confirmed judges. I believe that he confirmed a, 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 before to, today when we're taping the show, I believe it was 198 federal court judges, none of which were 
black. Why don't congressional Democrats and modern Democratic administrations approach judicial nominations like Republicans seem to do? Well, what's your answer to that, Brian? So because on the right, there is a lot of grassroots interest in the issue of judges. And so elected Republicans uh, treat the issue accordingly. They treat it as a political issue. They treat it as a um, as, as something to keep themselves connected to their grassroots base. Um, guns and abortion are two big motivating issues in the political right, and the courts are the venue for vindicating those two issues. And so the interests of the grassroots on the far right and the elected senators that are confirming these judges are totally connected. On the left, there is no attention paid at a grassroots level to the issue of the courts and judges. And so that frees up elected Democrats in the Senate to use judges as another modern day form of patronage. They still use it as sort of a clubby way to dispense favors to people that are political donors, to people that they went to law school with. And so we get people that have spent their lives at corporate law firms that are deep into their 50s or early 60s instead of looking at it as a pipeline project where we should be prioritizing people in their late 30s or early 40s that are gonna be on the bench for a long time instead of prioritizing people that have devoted their careers to work as public defenders or civil rights lawyers. And so we're interested at Demand Justice in sort of breaking up this system that rewards the same types of professional backgrounds and that rewards this system of clubbiness and chumminess and, and rewards political donors, and instead bringing some scrutiny to the uh, behavior of some of these Democrats. And this is not these are, we're talking about blue state Democrats that occupy safe seats do this. Like Dick Durbin just voted for two awful I Trump that. nominees. That and are they, one of them was a baby. One of them was like 33 years old. They just voted for two people that are awful on guns, awful on abortion, opposed by Planned Parenthood and NARAL. And he did it because it was a product of this backroom deal that he struck with the Trump administration where he got one good judge for three awful ones. Break up that deal breaking and sort of demystify this whole process of how judges are selected and get grassroots Democrats interested in promoting people that, you know, come from civil rights backgrounds, come from public interest and labor law backgrounds. Ellie, what's Barack Obama's uh, legacy on judges? Poor. Poor is the nicest word for it. And look, I love Barack Obama. If Barack Obama wanted to, you know, father my children, I would understand at least, you know, I, 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 he's got some skills that I don't got. Um, like, look, I, I, I don't, I don't criticize Obama easy, easily, but I think the the courts were a real missed opportunity for him. And I think the reason why, I think Brian did a great job of explaining the nuts and bolts of how we got here. But I think that we also have to look at kind of philosophically what the problems are. And I think Barack Obama is a great example of this kind of a philosophical view about what courts are and what they should do that while it probably made sense 50 years ago, <laughs> is just not how Republicans have changed and manipulated the third branch for the past 30 or 40 years at least, right? So Barack Obama is one of these kind of classic Democrats who believes that the courts should generally stay out of our most desperate political issues. That, you know, Barack Obama doesn't, didn't believe that the courts should be a part of our culture wars. He thought that those wars should be fought about electorally. Part of this is the arrogance of Democrats. And yes, I said arrogance of Democrats because we're so comfortable that we're right. As I said before, our views 
are extremely popular. People want a woman to have the right to choose. People want for there to be reasonable gun reform laws. People want there to be voting. People hate gerrymandering. Like all of these, you know, issues that are that are decided by the court. People want health care. Like we, we understand that we win the argument in a popular vote setting. And so it's common for Democrats in office to think, well, we'll just win these issues through popular elections and simply appoint judges who are reasonable mainstream guys or sometimes, you know, women. Obama was very good, I think, at expanding the diversity of his um, Supreme Court picks, but will appoint kind of fundamentally moderate people. So if you look at his most aggressive uh, Supreme Court nominee, that was kind of an accident. Sonia Sotomayor, his most aggressive Supreme Court nominee, did not present as a crazy fire-breathing liberal when she was on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. She looked like a moderate in the vein of his first nominee, his former Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, who, full disclosure, I had, I had in law school. Um, so she looked like that. It's just that once she got on the court, right, the, the fire brick red nail polish came out, and it turned out <laughs> that we had a tiger. You know, like it, Sotomayor kind of kept that, kept that, you know, under wraps. But we all know, just, just for the record, Sotomayor did clerk for none other than Thurgood Marshall. Yeah, although so did Atlanta Cake. So like he, oh, so he, 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 he didn't. I don't think that that Obama fully understood just what a fire breather they were getting in Sotomayor. In much the same way that Clinton and much of the feminist left did not understand what a fire breather they were going to be getting in Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. So Democrats try to appoint kind of normal, moderate judges, while as Republicans try to appoint the most crazy, fire-breathing arch-conservatives they can find, right? Neil Gorsuch is no moderate. Brett Kavanaugh was no moderate. ACB is no moderate. They're not even looking for moderates. They're not even looking for moderation in the court. The analogy that I've made before as to why Democrats have lost this battle is that you can think of like a seesaw and the Republicans putting an elephant on one side of the seesaw. And the Democrats keep putting people right in the middle of the seesaw. Well, you know what's going to happen? Those people in the middle are just going to slide down to the elephant side because the, because <laughs> the, you know, the balance has shifted so hard to the right. If you want to balance the seesaw, you got to put some elephants on the other side of the seesaw. Now, the seesaw might break. <laughs> I was like, the seesaw ain't going to, the seesaw will break. Are you trying to break the fundamental tenets of, oh my goodness, breaking news. You're, you're. You're a fucking revolutionary <laughs> radical, Ellie. That's what you are. <laughs> Let me ask you a question real quick, though. By the end of this year, Donald Trump, just along the same lines of what you were talking about, will have appointed nearly 300 federal judges from the Supreme Court to, to federal court, court of appeals, et cetera. Just for the listeners, where does this compare with Presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton at the end of their first terms? It's a record. I don't know the percentage of a record, but it's it's ridiculously more than any of them did at the same time in their turns. And you have to understand the reason why. One of the reason why Trump has been able to nominate so many people is not just because he's been faster at nominations than Obama was, because while Obama did start slow, he eventually ramped up. The reason why is that McConnell held so many appointments open during the Obama years, as soon I, you know, Democrats like to eat each other about which time we screwed up the most. For me, my game of when we lost is 2014, when during those midterm elections, that is the midterm where Mitch McConnell picked up nine seats in the Senate 
in the face of the lowest turnout for a midterm election since 1942. That's how the Democrats backed up the last two years of the black president. That's what happened. And when Mitch McConnell got those nine seats, everything stopped. Let me ask you this, though, Brian. Will And this is an open question, though. Will uh, Joe Biden be any different? Will he be different, not from Donald Trump, per se, but will he tackle the courts differently from how uh, Ellie uh, so eloquently articulated the way that, that Barack Obama looked at the courts? So there's a good side and a bad side of what we might be in for with the Joe Biden presidency. On the bad side, he was probably the most moderate person when it came to the discussion of the courts that played out during the presidential primary. So we didn't have a ton of discussion about judges in the courts during the presidential primary, but we had some, and, uh, and particularly about various court reform proposals. And Joe Biden was the only one in the field that didn't express at least openness to some version of either term limits, adding seats, lower court expansion, anything. Why is that? That's actually my next question. But, you know, he has been Joe Biden has resisted calls to expand the Supreme Court. He's also uh, or, or packed the Supreme Court, however we want to talk about it. And he's also not said anything about expanding the, the ranks of the district court. I think we need to add and I actually got this in the Democratic platform. We need to add another 80 to 100 federal court judgeships and he needs to go the route of Jimmy Carter. But why is he so timid on this issue? He's, um, you know, he's what they would call an old bull. And he's an institutionalist, a uh, longtime chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee during his time in the Senate. And um, so he knows this shit better than anybody. Why, what, what is the. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say is the is the potential positive side of Joe Biden as president. He is surrounded by people that fundamentally value and understand and don't need to be convinced about the importance of the courts. The person that is probably the leading candidate to be his chief of staff if he wins is a guy named Ron Klain, mm-hmm. who um, might be known to, to you guys. Ron is um, was in the White House Counsel's Office in the Clinton administration and personally sherpered RBG's nomination um, in the first Clinton term. He went on to become the chief of staff to Al Gore and to Joe Biden both when they were both vice president. And he's now an advisor to the campaign. Ron is on the board of the American Constitution Society. He's a former staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's had pretty much every job you can have in the Senate uh, judicial confirmation process. And I've spoken to Ron. Ron was one of the people I consulted with before I even started Demand Justice and and picked his brain about how we might approach the work. And so Ron's not anybody that's going to need a tutorial about how much they need to emphasize the judiciary if he becomes White House Chief of Staff or even if he has any other job in the White House. The only, my only concern is even with somebody like Ron Klain's commitment to this issue and the brain power he'll bring, they're just going to be under so much pressure next year to legislate on so many issues. Chuck Schumer, if he's a majority leader, is going to come under so much pressure on a COVID recovery package, on a climate change proposal, on voting rights restoration, that they need to figure out how they're going to make time to do judges too. Because we don't, you know... Ellie at the top of the show referenced, or you, Bakari, referenced, I think, setting up Rahm Emanuel's famous quote that, you know, we're not going to worry about fucking judges when we need to pass the ACA. And I don't think Ron Klain will ever utter a statement like that, but there needs to be a plan to make room for a judicial reform proposal and a strategy to move judicial nominations, notwithstanding all the things that they're going to have in the plate next year. Can I say something? But, 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 yeah, I wanted to come to you real quick, Ellie, but I wanted to frame the question like, like this and, and along the same lines. 
you articulated back in, I, I think it was 2014, what the biggest mistake was that the Democrats made. I actually think the biggest mistake Democrats made was not actually protecting the ballot in the last COVID re- recovery bill. I think that's going to be the biggest mistake that uh, ever comes down on the the, the plate of Nancy Pelosi. Um, but with all that being said, don't you think it's a mistake? And I want to hear your vision about what that court system should look like, because I know you've articulated some things that are kind of far out there. Uh, when I'm out here, when I'm out here saying on TV that you should add four new senators by making bringing statehood to DC and Puerto Rico, you know, and adding uh, 80 to 90 new judges, uh, federal court judges, and also adding um, three new Supreme Court justices. And Ellie's like, nope, we need to add just add another 20 Supreme Court justices. Tell, tell me what your thoughts are and what your vision is. Also a- answering whatever question you wanted to from Brian. Yeah, so two things. One, the other reason why I have some hope that Biden will be better than he could have been is because RBG died. Um, I think that if she had survived into his administration, she would have retired, he would have replaced her, and that's what it would have been done on judges, and we, he would have moved on. But given that there's an open seat and given what Republicans are about to do, this issue will be inescapable for him. The other reason why it's going to be inescapable, it's exactly what you just said, Bakari. You just said you want to add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. Guess who will nullify that? The 6-3 Supreme Court. Biden's going to want to pass health care. Guess who's going to nullify that? The 6-3. There is not a Democratic priority that will pass the 6-3 Supreme Court. That's why Republicans have worked so hard to pack it. So I, I think that the legislative realities of a conservative-controlled Supreme Court will make Democrats take this more seriously this time around, cabling all that. The reason why I have such an expansive view of court expansion, if you will, is because the way the court packing, court reform, court expansion is talked about right now is in a very revenge-focused way. They did that to us, so we're going to do that to them, right? And that is a good argument, actually, given how Republicans act. I'm all, I'm all for vengeance against Republicans. But there's a better argument, the reform argument. And that argument is that the court itself right now is broken, and we can see that in these nomination fights. It should not be political malpractice for the party out of power to vote for a judge you know, appointed by an opposing president, right? It should not be an existential threat to your party's agenda just because some guy dies eating a ham sandwich. Like that, that's not how the system was supposed to work. And the reason why it works that way now is not because the Supreme Court is too powerful, but because each individual justice on it is too powerful. We have too few. If we had 10 more Supreme Court justices, which is my initial proposal, uh, uh, expanding to a 19-member Supreme Court, the court would work more like the lower circuit courts in this country, most of which operate with far more than nine people. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which governs California, Oregon, and Washington, has 29 people. The Second Circuit, where I live in New York, has 15 people. Like, there are circuits are bigger than the Supreme Court. When the circuits are bigger, each individual judgeship is less of a critical issue. That's number one. Number two, an expanded Supreme Court allows the Supreme Court to hear most cases in a panel system. Now, there are pros and cons for panels, but for people who don't know what a panel is, most cases heard by lower courts are heard by a three-judge panel. That's three judges picked randomly 
from among the judges on the circuit. If we did that on the Supreme Court, immediately Donald Trump doesn't know which judges are going to rule on his case. And while the Supreme Court, just like the lower circuits, would still have the option of going what's called en banc, that means hearing it as a full court, while the Supreme Court would surely still have that option, it requires a majority vote on lower courts to go en banc. Right now on the Supreme Court, a lot of people don't know this, it does not take a majority for the court to hear the case. It only takes four votes for the court to decide to hear a case, not five. So just getting it to the point where it takes a majority of justices to hear a case as a full court would be a huge reform. So for those two reasons, I can go on for an hour, but those just two simple reasons, the possibilities of an expanded court allow us to get out of this constant life or death battle over each justice, over each potential nominee. And that has benefits to our entire society and certainly our entire legal system far beyond the immediate vengeance of getting back at McConnell for blocking Garland and pushing forward ACB. Brian, you talk about this a lot because you're someone who talks about uh, what Joe Biden can learn from Jimmy Carter. But what what are some of those lessons and how do you envision what the court should actually look like? Yeah, so uh, Chris King, my co-founder, and I wrote a piece in The Prospect a couple months back that basically pointed to the example of Jimmy Carter, not a lot of People cite Jimmy Carter as a model presidency, but when it came to how he approached the federal judiciary, he really was. Um, And there were a couple of remarkable things about how Jimmy Carter handled his approach to judicial nominations. The first was um, he signed into law a dramatic expansion of the lower courts. The district and appellate courts under Jimmy Carter grew by greater than a third. Um, And we're overdue in this country right now for modernization in terms of expanding the number of federal judges we have at the circuit and and district court level. It used to be a bipartisan priority that we would get addressed every 15 or 20 years. We haven't had any significant expansion of the lower courts since 1990. And so cases, uh, uh, the caseloads are mounting at the lower court level and we haven't had any modernization there. There's been a bipartisan bill that gets introduced Congress after Congress and hasn't been acted on. John Roberts himself has specifically appealed to Congress to add 60 plus seats to the district courts to handle caseload burdens. And so that's something that Joe Biden could prioritize next year. And right off the bat, even if Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump don't leave him any vacancies to fill, he could create dozens of new judgeships to fill in his first year if Congress were to prioritize that. I, of course, and Ellie agrees that we think we need to add seats at the Supreme Court level. But even if you want to go for low hanging fruit, we're, we're overdue for an expansion at the appellate and, and district court levels. The second thing Jimmy Carter did was, with all those new openings he had to fill, he broke the mold of the types of judges that he appointed. So mm-hmm. he took some power out of the Senate's hands and created commissions out of the White House by executive order with a priority of finding people that were racially diverse, that would bring women into the federal judiciary, and that would look for people outside the normal professional pipeline. And so we got liberal lions that served for decades on the courts and left lasting marks on the federal judiciary that owed their appointment in the first instance to, uh, to Jimmy Carter. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she was elevated to the Supreme Court, uh, was a circuit court judge that was first appointed by Jimmy Carter. Um, so 
I think in terms of both opening his mind to the idea of adding judges to create slots for himself to fill and then changing the types of model for judges that he does appoint, there is a lot to learn from Jimmy Carr. During these times of COVID, we understand how challenging these times are from public health concerns to business concerns, employment concerns, and hiring can be challenging for business owners as well, especially with everything they have to think about. But Monica Stark, she could relate. She needed to hire for a pivotal role at her construction company, GS Group, but was having a tough time finding the right person, especially with so many candidates out there. So she switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's how Monica found Lamont Jenkins. She said that ZipRecruiter sent Lamont's profile to her around five minutes. Wow, five minutes after she posted her job because he was a great match for the role. Through ZipRecruiter, Monica's company has hired everyone from accountants to project managers to field scientists. But Monica's not the only employer who loves ZipRecruiter. Listen up. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first 24 hours. That's the first day, y'all. See for yourself how ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. Try it now for free. That's right. Free. At ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-K-A-R-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. 
So I, I, we're wrapping up, guys. I know you guys, that we're actually taping this as, as three fathers. We have to find time to tape. So it's like <laughs> nearly the middle of the middle of the night when our kids are all like sleeping. Let me ask this question. I, I know that uh, assuming Vice President Biden uh, wins and we flip the Senate and and this is a big and the Biden-Harris administration actually prioritizes the courts, including an expansion plan. That will require us to align with Senator Feinstein, who chairs Senate Judiciary Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Now, I know both of you all saw the political piece raising real concerns about Senator Feinstein's ability to lead Democrats in the Judiciary Committee on an aggressive expansion, court expansion plan. Do you both, this is a question to both of you all, do you share the same concerns about DiFi's ability to lead the way we need Democrats to lead if we're going to gain and get the Senate back? Brian, you used to be in politics. Oh, wow. You throw the difficult. Brian's like, man, I ain't answering that. I... Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll make a prediction rather than issue a call. I'll predict that um, at the end of the next Congress, she will not be in chair as the chairwoman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So you mean at the end of this Congress or the next Congress? No, at the at, by the by the end of next Congress. So two think, years. Two, OK, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a pressure already for uh, from rank and file Democrats in the Senate for Chuck Schumer to raise the awkward conversation with her about uh, figuring out if there's some way that they can politely get her. To step I mean, out. it's like taking you. I mean, I, I don't know if, if y'all I mean, I'm pretty sure you do, Brian, but I don't know if y'all have like a matriarch. But my aunt Jenny Marie, she was old black woman, used to put two sticks of butter in her um Sweet potato pies and coconut pies wore big hats on the second row of the church. And when you hug her, you smell like Chanel number five all day. But my daddy, my daddy had to have a conversation with her when she was 92 years old to take away her car keys. That's what this conversation is going to be like. You don't want to go talk to your matriarch of the family about taking away her car keys. And Chuck Schumer's going to have to do that. I, uh, look, I think Chuck Schumer okay. may punt it to President Joe Biden, but one way <laughs> One way or another, I think it's probably you know what happen. that means. That means Kamala Harris is going to be going down and, and calling DiFi over to the Naval Observatory uh, and saying, you know, you're going to have to give up this chairmanship. What are you saying, Ellie? This is what this is where we need grassroots, right? So, so we talked about the asymmetry in the war at the elected level between Republicans and Democrats, but there's also been an asymmetry at the grassroots, and it's because the Republican base turns out and is vocal about what they want on the court and the liberal base never is. And so if Biden wins, what's going to be required is for the liberal base to be focused on the courts. We can't just assume that because we're right and because most people agree with us that we're going to get what we want, we need the base activated and motivated specifically on this issue. And if they're activated and motivated, politicians will move. They are politicians. They can be talked to. They can be pushed. They can be convinced, right? And so if, 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 if Dianne Feinstein has her voters, her constituents in California calling her up and saying, we need so-and-so on the court because we need climate change legislation, DiFi, we need you to add seats so that we can get Daniel Ho on the court to fight for climate change, well, then that is something she's going to listen to if she can't hear anything else because her phones are our answering machine is full like that. And that is literally the mentality that base voters need to have. I am happy to talk about the failures of establishment Democrats in making this case to the voters. But at some point, I'm going to need the voters to stand up here and take the courts as seriously as the Republicans do. 
Last question for you guys. I need your top three to five black justices that, oh, second to last question. And I, I can't, I can't, before we get to the top three to five, do you think that it is um, a fair question to be asked for a new uh, Joe Biden president? Or do you think it's something that should be done asking Justice Breyer to leave the courts? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, look, I, mean, the, I don't uh, want to be I'm, I was I was playing with my words because I don't want to be disrespectful. But is that a fair, fair question for I mean, maybe that's a grassroots prerogative. Republicans. Republicans have been lucky with death and strategic with retirements. Anthony Kennedy is healthy. Anthony Kennedy could be on the court right now. Anthony Kennedy is not on the court right now because he wanted to make sure that a Republican got to replace him with his protege, Brett Kavanaugh. And we can talk there. There is some there is some corruption, I believe, going on there. But more than anything, Anthony Kennedy was smart and retired when he could. Republicans generally retire when they can under Republican presidents. Democrats roll the dice and try to gut it out. People are going to think that I'm I am I am subtweeting the uh, the late great RBG. I am subtweeting the late great Thurgood Marshall, who was sick was was absolutely sick in uh, 1998 when he retired from the Supreme Court, allowing George H.W. Bush to name his replacement. Not 1988. Became, uh, 1988. Um, sorry, no, it was, he was sick in 90 when he retired uh, uh, to let H.W. Uh, Bush name his replacement. But he did not die. He did not actually die until January something, 1993, four or five days into the Bill Clinton administration. If he had just hung on until he died at work, um, (laughs) H.W. Bush would not have been able to name his replacement. That's where we were going with that. Okay, That's where I'm going. All right. So so Democrats... Democrats So Democrats either need to hang on and live a little longer or retire. Let me ask you this. Your top, I'm going to start with you, Brian, because Ellie just gave us that and we're going to pray for Ellie. But I want you to I want you to give me, I'm going to give you my top five choices. Kentanji Brown Jackson, number one. Sherry Beasley, the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, number two. Uh, Leandra Kruger uh, in California, number three. Uh, Danielle Holly Walker, Dean of the Howard School of Law, number four. And Sherilyn Eiffel, number five. So who are your top five possible black female justice picks for the next president of the United States? Well, so four of the names on, on your top five are on demand justice's shortlist, which people can read for themselves. By oh, wow. You got a whole shortlist out. I want to hear it. Okay. And we just expanded it because we re- released our initial one before Joe Biden issued his pledge to commit to nominating a, the first black woman. And so uh, since making that commitment, we updated it to add um, uh, 10 more uh, qualified black women. That would be a great pick. So uh, in addition to the four that you named that are already on our shortlist, I'm going to throw out Christina Swarns, who's the head of the Innocence Project, and before that was a litigator for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And um, with respect to Chief Justice Beasley from the North Carolina State Supreme Court, she just led a training that we did in North Carolina. We're in states all across the country doing trainings of uh, Democratic activists, trying to educate them about the high stakes of the Supreme Court. And uh, Chief Justice Beasley appeared at that, kicked it off. Uh, we were happy to have her. 
And then the last pitch I'm going to make before you ask Ellie for his names is we just launched two weeks ago a project called She Will Rise, which is a movement building on behalf of uh, the idea that we need a Black woman justice on the Supreme Court. Um, so we have Kim Tigner, who's formerly at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, and April Lane, who was the um, social media maven behind um, the Oscar, Oscar so for White campaign yeah. a couple of years ago, as well as uh, people like Brittany Packnett and Nicole Hannah-Jones all on the board of this uh, project, which is all about building grassroots energy and support for that commitment that Joe Biden has made. And so we're going to be doing events all throughout the fall. Obviously, we'll be this project will be involved in contesting the RBG confirmation fight. But uh, I, in the first year of the Biden presidency, we very well may, may get another vacancy on the court, even if Trump seeks to fill this one. And so that movement is building and we'll be ready so that there is an army and an infrastructure to support that one when Joe Biden makes that state election. I also have to mention uh, Michelle Childs, who's on the district court here in South Carolina. Phenomenal choice as well. I don't know if she's on your list, uh, Brian, but go add her, please. She's a great judge. So one thing I want your listeners to remember is that you do not have to be a lawyer to sit on the Supreme Court. Um, there are no qualifications to sit on the Supreme Court other than the president wants you to sit on the Supreme Court and you get confirmed by the Senate. And I bring that up just to make a larger point here um, that Demand Justice, I think, makes uh, does a great job of making that the current pipeline of finding a former judge or a law professor who like that's that's a very small pipeline. And I think that the court would benefit from some diversity of experience, not just diversity in terms of race, gender, um, or orientation. So, you know, if you thought that Stacey Abrams was great, maybe you think Stacey Abrams should be on the Supreme she Court. Has a, she has uh, a sister that deserves to be on the Supreme Court. You know, like... <laughs> you, can, you can get an Abrams family member on the Supreme Court. <laughs> there, there are lots of options. So with all the options that we've said, and I just would also throw in Maya Harris, who used to head oh, the I ACLU in yeah. uh, Northern California, who I think is just phenomenal. Um, so they're, they're, I, I want to make a specific plea for somebody that's already been mentioned, um, Christina Swarms. And I, and I, and I want to make that plea in the context of her work um, on the Innocence Project. So I think that it is critical that we get some number of justices, especially in my view of massively expanding the court, um, who do not come from a prosecutorial background, who have worked in criminal defense, who have worked in justice defense, and certainly who have worked in, on innocence. Um, because that is that perspective is the least represented perspective on our current court and throughout our judicial system. So... When you, when you talk about swarms, when you talk about a person um, who has experience literally running the innocence, uh, a, ver- a, a chapter of the Innocence Project, like that, that makes me very excited. And that is a story that I feel like I can go on, MSNBC, CNN. I have no contract, by the way, unlike some people here, um, in case anybody's listening. Um, but I can go on TV and I can make that case to my lawyers and I can explain to them why that pick is so important. Just to drive home that point that Ellie made about how refreshing it would be to have somebody from the criminal defense world on the court. You know, uh, after George Floyd, people got a real quick education in the problem of qualified immunity. That issue, which protects police from um, lawsuits from people that are on the wrong side of violence at the hands of law enforcement, uh, that is a problem entirely of the judiciary's making and not just Federalist Society judges, Democratic appointed judges and justices on the Supreme Court have had a hand in that too. 
Sotomayor has been one of the people that has started to speak out on that, but somebody like Justice Breyer is on the wrong side of that issue. So it's <laughs> not enough to just get a Democratic appointed justice on the court. We need one with a different vantage point on the law. I just, I mean, my, my listeners at The Ringer and Spotify um, are going to be just so enriched um, by this conversation. And so from the bottom of my heart, if you guys need absolutely anything, you can always call on me. I want to say thank you for being responsive. Thank you for joining the show. Ellie, I'll talk to the bosses about, you know, I might even, you know, I, I like Perrier water. So at least I'll cut back on my Perrier budget in studio and, and, and let them sign you to a deal. Brian, I love you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I, I wish that you were. I have to drive myself to the studio in order to. Exactly. Exactly, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast today. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.